I'm in the prime of life, says me, far as I be knowin'. Haven't time to slack around in comfort all the year. So when we get a little time before our boat gets going, we head on down to the library, and this is what we hear. Come, Come on, on in, and look, look all around, around. There's, there's plenty forward to see. Make your own self right upon my love, the library. Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. This week we have Rainforest Writers Read. Um, it was part of the Rainforest Festival this year, and this is part one, and next week we'll have part two. This week we'll have readings from Sue Paulson, John McCabe, Diane Benson, and Julie Hersey. Hello, everybody. It is so great to have everyone here. Uh, I am Oren Pearson, your facilitator of the Rainforest Writers Creative Writing Workshop. And I'm honored to be here with you for another year hosting this event of local literature to close out the Rainforest Festival. What a joyful last few days it's been celebrating this place we're all so lucky to share and be a part of. And I'd like to take a second to thank all the volunteers who put in effort practically all year long to bring these four days of festive inspiration together. And a big thank you goes out to our visiting artists and teachers, 
Kim McNett and Naomi Mickelson. It's been great to meet these visiting, uh, inspiring people. Big ganosh sheesh goes out to them. Also, it's important to acknowledge that the Rainforest Festival takes place on Clinket Ani, and I'd like to honor and respect the traditional landowners, Kik Kwan and uh, Shtakin Kwan elders, past, present, and future generations, ganosh sheesh. And I want to thank all of you for being here. Those of you who are reading tonight, those of you who are listening, it's so nice to be here together. And we've got a wonderful lineup of local writers reading their work. So for from the comfort of your own home on this beautiful Sunday evening, please offer a warm welcome to tonight's first reader. And that is Sue Paulson kicking things off for us. For us. Thank hey. you, Sue. Hello, everyone. Well, as we know, Petersburg's little corner of the rainforest has everything. Towering spruce and hemlock, tiny little Venus flytraps, lively politics. And through the years, powerful individuals whose lives speak of our history. This is a quick profile of one of them. I hope you knew her. Eternally, Miss Evans. She was peculiar, she was charming, she, she was idiosyncratic, and in the end, she was iconic. Miss Evans was recalled with gratitude or a grimace by PHS students of the 40s to the 70s when she passed on at 98. But one thing is certain, she was unique. Faulkner would have created her if she hadn't come to us out of South Dakota in 1943 in a pleated Pendleton skirt and a white blouse propelled by signature white kids and a serious expression. We never saw her in anything else. Teachers and nurses came to us from such exotic places in the 1940s, and most of them married our fathers, but Miss Evans remained aloof in a fabled apartment over Hammer and Wicon's hardware store for 70 years. It was painted a few times, but otherwise a time capsule with teacups. The legendary apartment with its original ceramic sink and red linoleum backsplash. The living room set that she reupholstered using the material on the backside of the couch included small and beautiful urban gardens. One was a secret garden, accessible through a labyrinth above the hardware store and its dahlias visible only in a light shaft that looked in on her kitchen table. In the apartment's early days, it saw visitors, even a roommate, my mother. But later, Esther feared that complaints to management might result in eviction, so you couldn't touch the telephone as its cord was frayed. And when she lost the door key, she simply used the window at age 95. Management was reputedly kind, did not raise the rent once in 70 years. Miss Evans wrote the book on school, old school. A perfectionist, she profiled the adolescent herd. She prodded the adolescent herd toward competence in accounting and typing in a set of classroom desks kept pristine with her own hands. She informed us that she personally chipped all the gum off the undersides of the seats during summer vacation. Deeply and sincerely dedicated to the essentials of the high school education of her era and to a Victorian ideal of behavior, Ms. Evans taught eighth graders the niceties of the Dewey Decimal System during a portion of their lunch hour as she was in charge of the library as well as the business curriculum. It is a tribute to the upbringing of Petersburg youth that no rebellion occurred, at least no organized rebellion. Her style was arch, usually severe. There was no time to waste in the pursuit of success in the business world. 
When President Kennedy was shot, the school secretary moved from class to class with the news, and the more easily moved teachers wept as we reeled from the shock. In typing class, Ms. Evans received the information, looked back to the class, and directed everyone to turn to page 65 for a time test. Her temper was volcanic. No one who witnessed it can forget the powerful anger she expressed as she ripped the page out of the Royal Manual typewriter and shouted to Jim Housley, do you mean to communicate to this businessman that you have put 142 enclosures into this envelope? Housley did not repeat the error. One morning, Sherry Lynde and Al Otnes were having a snowball fight in the upper hall. One of the orbs flew through the typing room door, fearing the worst. Alan dashed into the science room and slammed the door shut, but left holding the bag, Sherry shouted him back out of the hall. Just as Miss Evans emerged, fire in her eye, a ruler in her hand, she subdued Otnes. She supervised, as teachers in a small school do, some of the extracurricular events, remaining a constant figure at ball games, taking tickets and molding adolescent accountants into potential bankers. Colleen Nicholson was directed by the principal to learn typing on her own time. Miss Evans gave her individual lessons on her own time. She was reputed to be rich and generous to her nieces and nephews. Miss Evans presided for years during summer vacation in the glass enclosed office at the public dock, manipulating bills of lading and freight charges with ease as we went by to the cold storage or the steamship. The first mutual funds in our town were sold at her kitchen table. And when you had to take cash out of them, she was disapproving. It seemed a circumscribed existence to the observer, but it must have been satisfying. She knew everyone and their descendants, of course, and in later years would pop up beside you at an art show or a funeral, make a pithy comment on the artwork or the deceased and quickly glide away. Her pies and needlework were prize winning Midwestern classics. Everyone wondered if she'd ever had a bowl, but we knew she must have when she purchased a plaque for the Memorial Park in memory of a fisherman lost at sea 50 years ago. Dementia overtook her in the end, sending her to the bank to accuse the tellers of hiding her money, making her forget to turn the water off and causing a flood at Hammerin Weekon. She had to go to the manor at last, bringing the venerable furniture and a closet full of Pendleton skirts and white blouses. She found friends there and rounded out her long and illustrious career as a landmark in our local geography. She'll be remembered as long as her students live, as an authoritarian, as a taskmaster that kept them to the mark, driving home with irreducible force the principles and techniques of typing and accounting. Her familiar figure on the way to the post office in that aged sweater, the occasional social anxiety that made her look at a tree when you passed by, that little hat she knitted for your baby, all of it made her a prominent figure in the panoply of local life. And sometimes makes me think of Gray's elegy in a churchyard. In another setting, she might've been Napoleon. Anyway, we've certainly known so many wonderful teachers uh, in Petersburg and Miss Evans was among the most unforgettable. Thanks. Loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Thank you for that, Sue. Wow. Remember Miss Evans? Of course you do. Who couldn't? What a wonderful <laughs> tribute. Gosh. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Okay. Well, our, our next speaker tonight is Mr. John McCabe. So we are going to welcome him to the stage here. Hi. 
Okay, I'm here. All right, I, uh, I have a poem that involves two letters. The title of the poem is I Will Love You Forever. I will love you forever, 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 forever. Letter, Philip to Evelyn. My darling Evelyn, when we next meet, I will hold you in my arms and search your eyes for our pools of passion. Together, we can drift into our heartbeats and share the dreams we have shared so many times with just an understanding glance. Your letter, when I hold it close, as a sense of you, it becomes part of my being. I trust my response will be an event that provides you sustenance and constantly reinvigorates our shared admiration. You are my one, my only. Without you, I am without light. At times, loneliness stalks, and I must immediately write and explore our potential for endless fire. Write me soon and speak of our love, for it comforts me beyond measure. Your devoted lover, Philip. Letter, Barney to Maud. I'm on. I miss you. Yep, I'm at the pint and a half, and everybody says hello. I have a, I'm having a cold one, and I'm gonna hold it in the air. I'll do a pretend clink, like we always do when we have our first brew. I bet you wish you were here to peek at the menu to see what Mike came up with for Thursday's lunch and dinner special. It's gonna be a Buster Burger with all the goodies. Three beef patties instead of two, and fried onions on the side. I'll have it tonight. Coquino misses you. She sits in your chair, looks around and meows now and then. Sounds like she's lonely. I'm sure she'll be glad to see you. I'm recording our favorite TV programs so we can watch them when you get back. Have a good time and hello to all the family. See you soon, sweetheart, Barney. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, John. Those characters. If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today's show is Rainforest Writers Read 2021, and this is part one, and next week we'll have part two. And the readers that we have coming up are Diane Benson and Julie Hersey. Okay. Next on the stage, we are going to welcome Diane Benson. I'll be reading two pieces, one called Ship Creek Access, a story from the book Anchorage Remembers, and a poem, Life Gambling. Ship Creek Access. 
Thick brown fingers carefully wrapped the fish line, creating a loop. We were gathered around him in front of our Chugiak log home, watching intently. My grandson seemed to get it right off. Uncle Jim finished by securing the weights and handing us one more pole. It would be another day fishing in Anchorage at Ship Creek. Back in Alaska visiting again after military discharge, my son, Flatsine, his wife, Jessica, and my grandson, Gage, gathered their things to go fishing with Tony and me. I packed up snacks, filled each thermos, and loaded backpacks into the pickup. Diane, do you have any boots I can wear? Jessica asked. Yep. I pulled out some waders I just happened to buy at one of Anchorage's many summer garage sales, a favorite pastime for us all. I think these are nicer than my old ones, I said. Conveniently, Jessica and I wore the same size. She was from Texas, a Tex-Mex, she called herself, and had never seen snow until her first Christmas in Alaska. Her father made the best tamales. I wish we had those to pack. Yum. The truck was full with fishing poles, supplies, packs, boots, jackets, five people, and a wheelchair. We did it. We were off. Uncle Jim waved as we pulled out. A Vietnam War veteran and former Army Ranger with hundreds of jumps under his belt. His ankles were shot. I watched through the rearview mirror as he carefully went up the ramp and disappeared into the log house. We drove through Anchorage, past where the old Alaska Native Medical Center once stood on the northeast end of 3rd Avenue, the place where my son came into the world. We meandered northwest towards Government Hill, down across the railroad tracks surrounded by the city. People were strewing up and down Ship Creek. Not like fishing in Kenai, though. It was manageable. I found a great parking space, and everyone dutifully did his or her part to make the trek. Platsine hoisted himself swiftly into his wheelchair, and in happy anticipation of fish, we made our way down to the trail. The trail ran along the river, and I went ahead to investigate its condition. Perhaps we should make our way closer to the mouth. Not too close, of course. Too much muck that would suck up our boots and leave you stranded would be no good. Not too far upstream, either, where the banks were too steep to get close enough. No sense in having to swing so high and far only to see your hook catching a branch or worse. Hey, look, Grandma, a deck. Gage carried his pole and pack as if he had done this his whole life. Even though he lived in the lower 48, he was made for the Alaska outdoors, just like his father. We gathered on the site deck and looked down. Could this work for Tletzin? The rest of us who weren't quite as gifted at casting would have to be down on the riverbank. Looking at the sun sparkling off the river's ripples, I noticed how the water spread shallow with twigs and a log disrupting the flow. Flatsine rolled onto the deck. He'd give it a try. Someone would stay with him, and the rest of us clambered down to the banks and quickly got our lines in the water. I pulled out my little aluminum camping chair. I always carried it, even for long lines at the DMV before they finally put all those seats in. This was the life. I looked up to the deck. Flatsine wasn't there. Grandma, we're moving, Gage said and gestured to the trail. We could glimpse, glimpse Jessica and Flatsine making their way towards the inlet. We scrambled together our things and scooted up to the trail. We neared the road that crossed the river, and somehow Flatsine got his chair close enough to descend the concrete steps that ran alongside the bridge. I was nervous. Flatsine eased himself down the steps on his hands, and then he and Jessica proceeded to cast. I shook my head in wonder. He always found a way. Flatsine was the strongest person I knew, not because I named him strength at birth or because he was fearless or because he survived a war, a divorce, and had the wherewithal to fall in love again and marry a great woman. 
He was the strongest person I knew because he chose to live. Live while you're alive, he said on national television after his year of recovery. He was on a show called Miami Inc., getting a tattoo that commemorated the bomb and the personal loss of his legs in Iraq. It helped him to handle the grief that he would not expose. Casting and reeling, he was quite content. The only thing that could make it better would be catching a fish. After fishing with no results, we headed down the trail yet again, going towards the mouth of the river that weaved through grassy mud flats stretching each direction, the area encroached upon by shipping containers, pipe and barges loading. But where we stood, where the river widened its mouth, I could almost feel a Bethel kind of breeze across the tundra, taste the southeast ocean air off Chatham Strait, and capture the piece of isolation on a hill out of Ruby, overlooking the Yukon River. I breathed it in. Seagulls squawked suddenly, and I almost fell over. I smelled fish. Clearly, there were fish in Ship Creek. Across the way, someone shouted, fish on, and upstream on our side of the bank, a fisher pulled the hook from a nice-sized king. Our eyes lit up. We were anxious to get our hooks back in the water, but the trail ended, and the wheelchair wouldn't go. Too rocky, too mucky, we stopped. Gathered together on the bank at the end of the river's trail, we stood, facing the expanse of tall grass we could not enter. We stood together, watching others fish where, there, where the river widened towards Cook Inlet. Our breath was on pause. We stood, watching. In a collective sigh, we silently stepped away. My son turned his wheelchair around and headed down the trail. He and Jessica stepped back into the spot by the bridge. My grandson carried poles, helped who needed it, and then with a satisfied gaze cast his line. So did I. My, I thought, my family is here. My family is here. Just down the road from where Tlatzin was born. We are here together. It is a good day. In this piece, uh, Life Gambling, in a book of poetry, my One Native Woman's Manifesto. I feel like I am riding on the back of song waves that cry and carry me through the southeastern channels I traveled as a child. I am overcome. I feel my grandmother's hand like a whisper. I feel a sea of feelings in an empty cave on an abandoned beach. I am just a clamshell a witness to the stolen. I took a fishing boat from Ketchikan to Metlakatla, five bucks. I was 13, maybe 14. I did it often, run away to Metlakatla, get away from the foster homes, the hairy fists that smelled the beer and the sneers at my tiny breasts. My father, who had no time to visit, but it didn't matter because we found him in the smoke-filled back rooms on the docks playing cards anyway. Easy to urge him to hand over the five bucks real quick his cards on the table, no questions. He was busy scooping up his earnings. I would run to catch the boat. Tongas Narrows, where my dad nearly died in a taxi cab accident. He had probably won at the tables that night and a hooker held his money in her cleavage as they both went hurling into the water at low tide in the late dark. She saved his life, holding his trapped body pinned by the taxi held his head above the rising tide until help came. He spent maybe a year in a body brace, 
broken and spiritually drunk. I had been sent to Indian boarding school by then. I didn't know until he was out of the brace. I found him in the Ingersoll Hotel, curtains closed for months, coaxing him to the daylight. The splash of rare Ketchikan sun hit us like five shots of tequila, and I reminisced. Dad, do you remember the long boat rides, the red skiff, and we went to the place of waterfalls? You got deer, and the floorboards ran red after you cut their throats to drain them. I remember. Black bears used to wander through the camps on Prince of Wales Island, and my brothers used to think they were dogs. Here, doggy, doggy, they would say. I tell them, no, I'm little, but I know we're not supposed to touch them. Dad is down the winding logging road. Time to work, and we spent days trying to float an old skiff with holes, picking seaweed, probing sea cucumbers, whipping the sea with kelp. It didn't last long, though. They would steal us back to Ketchikan to grow up, to park with another foster parent. Only we cried, and no one used our shingit names. Dad was always going to get that big win and come and get us someday. All I had to do was learn how to cook. Then we'd all be together. So I did, but he never came back. After Indian boarding school, I saw dad downtown after the police released me from their usual questioning and we went to the bars. Later, dad went to gamble and I sat on the docks till the sun scattered light across the channel, waiting for another sight of Akushtaka, the creature from the sea, who might steal away with your soul. Gunasthish. Wow. Gunasthish, Diane, thank you for that. Wow. We have our next reader coming up. It's going to be Julie Hersey. Welcome, Julie. Okay. I wrote this piece about uh, when I used to cook on the charter boat, my husband Scott and I used to run for over 20 years in Southeast, taking people out for a week at a time, enjoying all the beauty of the rainforest. It's called the galley table. The white yacht slowly backs out of the slip with propellers churning and turns to leave the harbor. I watch town recede, hoisting the fenders and coiling the lines into the lockers on the bow. Our charter guests stay up on deck taking photos of the canneries on pilings, biking sea lions on the bell buoys and the snow-capped coast range in the distance. I take a deep breath and head below to start cooking. Hours go by. I'm hemmed into the tiny galley, chopping, stirring, cooking the lunch, the afternoon snack, tonight's dessert, and always throughout the trip, there is someone who takes a seat at the galley table and starts unspooling the story of their life such as, she left me because of my low sperm count. Seriously, I think to myself, while trying to do the math of tripling a recipe, two-thirds times three cups is what again? Oh, that must have hurt, is my standard reply as I dig through the darkened bowels of my overstuffed fridge trying to find the cream cheese. Somehow I never stack the items I need in the order I will need them. Or maybe they say, I mostly dream about my cat. She's 13. Here's her picture. Uh-huh, I respond, wishing I'd brought more lettuce since some of the guests now say they're vegans, so they won't eat the frozen shrimp thawing in the sink. 
Why can't they let me know before we leave the dock for a week-long cruise? They manage to share every other detail about their lives. People love to talk about themselves, and especially when I'm not making eye contact. In fact, that's when they stop. When I stare at them with a knife poised in midair because they just described their daughter drowning in a flood that destroyed their home, they shut down. They've said too much, apparently, and they quit at the most dramatic moment in the story. Usually, it's the loneliest person on board. Everyone else is up on deck watching whales or fishing for halibut, and that's when the tortured chatty pants at the galley table shares their saga, lining out where it all went wrong. Like... I never should have married Melvin. It was a mistake, and I wasted my life waiting for him to retire. Meanwhile, Melvin is up in the pilot house asking Scott why the television doesn't work on board for about the fourth time. Oh, that must hurt, I say to her as I measure the oil into the cake batter. Yes, I've screwed up some recipes, especially when the tales get very dark or too ridiculous. For example, I have not had a solid bowel movement in 10 years. Oh, can you go ask the captain if he wants a cup of tea, I respond brightly, as though concerned he might actually need one. That's our code phrase, meaning I need a break, and he's to encourage the guests to stay up in the pilot house with him. And sometimes they come back down to the galley saying, no, he says he doesn't need one. Now, where did I leave off? Oh, I'll just check to make sure, I reply looking daggers up the steps where my husband is steering the boat in relative peace. Tea, I ask him with a tight smile he recognizes. Oh, right. Send them up, he responds. Most days we anchor the boat and the guests go with Scott in the skiff to sightsee or fish, leaving me on board still cooking, but usually alone, except when some guests decide to stay at the galley table. One lonely man told me, well, I came on this trip because I need to talk to my sister about my past. I was a Navy SEAL. I hurt people and I need to tell her. I can't live with it anymore. I'm really depressed. Now I can't remember where I am in the recipe. Did I add all the eggs? Did this guy kill people? When did Scott say he was coming back? I'm alone on the boat in a remote cove with a sleeping toddler and maybe an admitted assassin. It doesn't get much more exciting than this at the galley table, except for the time the drunk dentist stabbed his doctor brother in the nose with a fork trying to steal the last caramelized mushroom. At least they brought their own suture kits. But I digress. Cooking on the boat was endless. The tedium of washing a never-ending round of greasy dishes relieved only by the steady stream of stories. So many variations on the theme, and it became a rhythm I could not work without. Now people ask, does it bother you when people talk to you while you're trying to cook? No. Actually, I can't cook anymore without the sound of a human voice, preferably live, nattering away in my ear, describing one more tale of the human spirit, fumbling towards wholeness and connection against all the odds. Thank you. Julie, thank you so much. Wow. What a story. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and thank you to Oren Pearson and the Rainforest Writers who participated in Rainforest Writers Read 2021. Join us next week, and we will have the second half of the writers um, 
This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration of KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. And you can also listen to this online at psglib.org. Thank you.